Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Welcome to the Weber Wenzel Legal Insights podcast. I'm Gabby Richards, a partner in the financial regulatory team, and I'm joined by my colleague and partner, Lene Green, as well as Annalisa Ndabele, who's an associate in the team. Today, we'll be continuing with the ESG series targeted at the TMT sector, and our focus will be on the G in ESG, which we all know represents governance. With the buzz that's been created in the past few years, ESG has become very important. It's geared towards making sure that every business understands and engages with the broader societal concerns of its day-to-day operations, mainly targeted at non-financial metrics. The key driver of ESG is for the business to strive for long-term value creation that strengthens and doesn't hamper the environment and the broader society in which the business operates. Seeing that we sit specifically in the financial services sector, which is seeing more involvement in the TMT space, uh, we'll be looking at significant consequences that may arise from failures uh, in governance, specifically by the board of directors and senior management within a business. South Africa has a heavily regulated financial services sector, which means that financial institutions are under greater scrutiny. And with the surging interest in ESG, it's important for financial institutions and their partners, such as telcos and fintechs, to be cognizant of the governance requirements. To kick us off, uh, Annalisa, could you comment on why financial institutions should be concerned specifically with the G being governance? Sure, and thanks, Gabby. Um, so just to build on what you've just said, um, definitely with the popularity of ESG, we have seen that there is a highlighted focus on global sustainability and development agendas such as climate change and net zero, um, which generally speak to environmental considerations. And complementary to that, there has even been a renewed drive towards sustainable development and uh, corporate social responsibility, as well as um, businesses recognizing the importance importance of diversity and promoting inclusion. And all of that is fundamental to the S in ESG because it speaks to uh, social aspects. But there seems to be less of a discourse on governance and specifically for financial institutions whom you've just mentioned have or are under um, greater scrutiny, uh, governance actually needs to be a primary consideration when businesses establish and implement um, their governance frameworks. This then begs the question, what is governance? And generally, there isn't one specific definition for what governance is, but it does refer to the way in which a company is managed, including its leadership structure, its internal systems and controls, as well as the rights that shareholders hold. There isn't a closed list of considerations that would fall under governance, but generally there are certain buckets, uh, I would say, that make up governance. And these could be anything from compliance with regulatory laws uh, to the risk management of the company, as well as how it engages with stakeholders and any reputational um, mitigation and risks that it undertakes, as well as its monitoring, disclosures and reporting procedures. 
Now, attending to these buckets are usually your board of directors or, as you've mentioned, and to some degree, the senior management of a company. And so if those stakeholders are not aware of their governance responsibilities, that is, if the company doesn't have an appropriate governance framework in place or that it hasn't established um, the necessary operational systems to ensure uh, implementation of and compliance with such governance framework, then these would be the individuals that are liable for any failures and would be deemed to have breached a whole host of duties found in both common law and legislation, more specifically for FSPs. I think that's right, Annalisa, specifically considering that directors are at the core of the business and they are ultimately responsible for the corporate governance um, of the company. As we know, directors owe a fiduciary duty to the company. As you mentioned, some of these duties are codified, um, such as in the Companies Act and the King Code and other financial services legislation. We also have other duties that have evolved over time um, in our common law. In the ESG era, directors are, however, also forced to consider prevailing market sentiment when discharging their fiduciary duties. This is mainly from a reputational perspective, um, given the increased scrutiny that these businesses are under. Um, just touching briefly on the consequences of the breach of fiduciary duties, uh, as is well known, directors face personal liability for non-compliance, and the company can also, in certain instances, um, take action. If we then think about governance uh, in terms of the regulatory framework, um, and specifically with reference to the other relationships within the company, we've obviously touched on directors' duties uh, towards the company. What do we need to consider in terms of other parties or employees, for example, within the company, and are their activities or relationships um, regulated? Thanks, Gabby. And it's it's such a difficult question if we look at governance as how to practically go about it. So to illustrate that a bit further, we can look at these relationships. But the first thing that you need to bear in mind is what are the acts of your company? What are the services that you're rendering to your customers? Are these services regulated? And in what relationship do I stand as an employee in my company? So not only... Do directors have fiduciary duties? A fiduciary relationship can arise where there are certain elements present. So if we think about the telecoms, media and technology sector, this sector often overlaps with the financial services sector. What I mean by that is that in this sector, there is often financial service providers or companies that also has uh, renders financial services with regards to certain products. But even taking a step back, if we think about a fiduciary duty, when does that arise? Even in common law, it's not regulated by a particular um, act, it's not a statutory obligation, but we need to be uh, mindful of Phillips versus Fieldstone. And case law, we don't have to remember, but the principles that are important is that if these three elements are present, you might be standing in a fiduciary relationship towards a principal or another party. And I'll illustrate why that's important, just to touch on the consequences. If there's a scope for the existence of some discretion or power, or the power or discretion can be used unilaterally, so you're the agent acting on behalf of a principal, and there's a vulnerability to the exercise of that discretion or power. If those three elements are present, 
and you are an agent acting on behalf of a client in the company, then a fiduciary relationship might be present. Now that you've established that there is a fiduciary relationship, what are the duties that are imposed on that particular employee in your company or that agent who is acting on behalf of a client? What If you then realize that there's a conflict between the duties and a personal interest that you might have, then it might be that you're acting in breach of that fiduciary duty. So what are the consequences? Why are we so... Um, why is it such an important aspect? We need to be looking at if there's a conflict of interest and it has not been disclosed, then there might be far-reaching consequences. So some of the aspects that might occur is that if you are making, as that agent standing in a fiduciary duty, if you are making a secret profit, that profit would automatically accrue to the principal who may claim a disgorgement of those profits. So there are two aspects that are important. You need to disclose if you are making any secret profits and you actually need to get a waiver from that client to indicate that you are allowed to actually earn that profit. So only in that scenario, we can see that there are far-reaching consequences if we're not firstly aware of our fiduciary duty, if we're standing in that relationship. And if we are standing in that relationship, if there is a conflict, how do we manage it from a governance perspective? And that's something that not only the directors can oversee, it is something that we need to be mindful of when standing in a particular relationship within your company. This is merely a conflict um, of interest at common law. So this is the common law position. But furthermore, as I've mentioned, this overlaps with the financial services sector where you've got financial service providers in your group You also need to know that we've got statutory obligations and it's codified in the Financial Advisory Intermediary Services Act. But Annalisa will take us through some of those principles. Thanks, Lene. Um, So as you've mentioned, um, South African financial sector laws are very prescriptive uh, when it comes to potential or actual conflicts of interest. And this is particularly relevant where there is a relationship between an FSP or financial services provider and a third party. Sometimes this would be potentially the product supplier um, in respect of a financial product. And in that instance, Uh, the remuneration that can be earned is limited to what is prescribed in the Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act or FASE Act, as we commonly refer to it, as well as the General Code of Conduct for Authorized FSPs. Um, Specifically in the General Code of Conduct for Authorized FSPs, uh, a concept of interest includes the receipt of any remuneration by that FSP, which prevents or could potentially prevent that FSP from rendering an unbiased and um, actually a fair service to its clients. Or it could prevent the FSP from acting in the best interest of its clients and in that sense, the general code is definitely uh, more uh, broader and wider than the common law principles. And specifically, it requires that to an extent that any financial interest is paid to an FSP, that uh, financial interest needs to fit into uh, one of the allowed categories that are provided for in the closed list in the general code. And generally, this could inclu- include commission, fees, or other remuneration that is prescribed under statute for which that FSP is entitled. 
or alternatively, that um, remuneration would need to be what is referred to as reasonably commensurate with the services um, that it has rendered for that third party. And when you determine whether or not um, the remuneration is reasonably commensurate, that needs to actually be a factual inquiry looking at that particular relationship. So if a financial interest is received and it doesn't meet um, either of those uh, closed list of categories and it doesn't fall under the general code in that respect, then that financial interest is going to be deemed unlawful because it is in contravention with the provisions of the general code and serious penalties could arise. And so if you're looking specifically at FSPs that may or may not sit within your TMT sector group, you need to be aware of the possible consequences that may arise. Thank you, Annalisa and Lene. This has been very detailed and insightful. I wonder if I could ask you just to summarize, what do you think are the key takeaways for our clients, uh, specifically in the context of the TMT sector, um, and then I guess more generally as financial institutions? Thanks, Gabby. Perhaps I can kick us off with the takeaways and just say that, you know, governance should not be overlooked, even though it is the last letter in ESG. Governance is definitely an essential pillar of ESG, and it truly affects how uh, the environmental and social pillars are actually implemented. And I would say that governance is actually the most important tool to assist companies, directors, and senior management in ensuring that there is some value creation from its ESG uh, propositions and goals and to ensure that these are actually realized. Thanks, Annalisa. And I think the key takeaway for me is how to practically go about it on your day-to-day activities as a company. First, understand if you are engaging in a regulated act, if you're rendering financial services, for example, and the relationship in which your employees, not only the directors, in what type of relationships they are entering into, to understand what your governance framework should look like. And when we're looking at a governance framework, it's important to know that it should be all-encompassing. Understand the entities in your group and the activities that they engage in so that you can have a governance framework that actually touches on all these nuances to avoid the far-reaching consequences that may arise if you're not aware of that. Thank you to my colleagues, uh, Lene and Annalisa, and thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the Weber Wenzel Legal Insights Podcast. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.